Hello everyone, this is your host Caroline Owen, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Global Perspective, my podcast about all things political, multicultural, and international. This is the eighth episode, titled How the Coronavirus Has Impacted Hong Kong and China-U.S. Relations, and today one of my teachers and I are going to be discussing the current Hong Kong-China situation, as well as talk about how possible U.S.-China trade deals have been compromised due to the COVID pandemic. Today I have a special guest with me, one of my teachers, Mr. Samedi. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Mr. Samedi, and I'm a social studies teacher at Caroline's High School. I am also the Model United Nations Advisor. And so during my career, I've had a lot of exposure to international relations, law and diplomacy. It's something that I think is very important. It's something I'm really passionate about, especially working with young people, getting them involved in these issues at an early age. Uh, I think it's especially critical for high school students to be informed about what's going on currently in the world and through Model UN. Caroline and I hope to spread this global awareness to other students at our school. Thank you so much for um, volunteering your time to appear on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Of course. I'm delighted to uh, be joining you for this episode, and I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about your insights today. And, you know, let's get right into it and start talking about some of these issues. Yeah. Um, so today our podcast, like a lot of the other episodes I've been doing, is going to be structured into two different segments, although the topics are very similar, so they're probably going to ebb and flow into each other. Um, but today our two main topics are how the coronavirus has impacted both U.S.-China relations and Americans' view of China. And then our second segment is going to be a discussion on the current Hong Kong-China situation, which... I feel like is something that isn't getting a lot of press coverage or as much media coverage as it had been, say, a year ago. I think definitely because of the fact that um, America and international politics are being dominated by COVID right now. Um, so I'm going to start with um, a couple of questions just about how um, the COVID crisis has impacted Americans' view of China. I think um, this is not a topic we're going to spend a whole lot of time today, but it's still definitely important. So, Mr. Sumedi, um, we we definitely planned out a little bit of research here, but I just want to ask what one of your um, what's what your perspective is on how COVID has not only affected um, how Americans view the Chinese government, and you know, obviously, relations between the two countries have been deteriorating for a couple of years at this point, but maybe how it's also impacted um, Americans' view of Chinese citizens. Well. I would say that the the biggest, you know, change is probably the fact that at this point, you know, the the virus has originated in China and obviously spread out of there to other countries in the world. And the fact that, you know, there was some negative backlash about this and some finger pointing that maybe China could have done more to stop the spread of the virus initially. It does seem like right now uh, most of the confirmed entry point cases into the United States seem to have come from Europe and not directly from China itself. But I would say that, I mean, that seems to be where a lot of that, that backlash is coming from is just this idea that, you know, the virus originated there and that perhaps the Chinese government um, could have informed the world better about what was going on or maybe could have done more to try to stop the virus from spreading out of their country um, before it, it entered into other parts of the world. So, so I would say that that's probably where a little bit of that 
tension has been coming from, at least with the coronavirus case. I mean, there's other things that you mentioned going back, you know, the last few years as far as trade agreements and other things like that and human rights issues. But I would say the main thing, you know, right now for most Americans, probably the coronavirus, I think, because it's so much the first thing on a lot of people's minds right now. Definitely. And I think it's really important to note that um, despite the fact that China has done a relatively good job, at least, you know, currently of keeping the virus under control, that is where pretty much all of the cases originated from that spread to America. So I think I'm definitely in agreement with what you said. I think the coronavirus, um, the fact that it originated from China and then spread to our country has definitely been the major source of tension. And I think um, this will really play into our next segment. But I think the main theme is that each of the world leaders for these two nations, so our president and the leader of China, they're really both grappling to maintain this label of world superpower amidst the crisis, which I think is really influencing not only their domestic and foreign policy, influencing their um, relationship with the virus, relationship with the other country and how the virus has complicated everything. But I definitely agree with you. I think it's um, really important to keep the origin and kind of the um, the source of this virus in mind because that really affected a lot of how our nation views it and how our current leadership views it. So I'm going to move on to the next section. I think this is where we'll be spending most of our time um, regarding China and America today. And that's how the coronavirus has impacted U.S.-China foreign relations and U.S.-China trade deals. So, Mr. Sedmay, do you mind giving a bit of uh, maybe historical context, if you have any, on um, U.S.-China trade relations? Well, I think in the last few years, China has become an increasingly important part of are international trade and, and trade for a lot of countries. They are the world's largest manufacturer. So if you go back to you know, World War II, um, before the communist revolution took power in China and the People's Republic of China was created, our trade dealings with China were relatively limited, especially when compared to today. Our trading partners were much more you know, either neighboring countries or countries in Europe. Uh, now, obviously, China's become a major trading partner, not only to the United States, but to the rest of the world. And those trade you know, agreements have become increasingly important. The fact that they manufacture so much has obviously been a reality in the fact that the United States, well, at the same time, their manufacturing has gone up in recent decades. And it's been a huge explosion in the 21st century. Um, ours is considerably shrunk. I mean, our manufacturing capacity has gone way down. Part of that is that the cost of labor in doing business in the United States is higher. American workers expect and need to be paid more to, to, to make a living. So it's become increasingly more affordable to do business uh, and do and handle manufacturing in China. And so, you know, that's been a reality in these these trade agreements. The fact that there are some people who look at it the concept that we've lost manufacturing jobs to China and other places overseas. And, and so that, I, mean, I think that's been a big source of the probably the tension between the two as far as trade deals, because, you know, I think some people would like to see more manufacturing return to the United States and feel like it would benefit, you know, our economy. And I, I, I feel like that's the source of a lot of the tension, if you will, between the two countries as far as trade and in recent recent uh, you know decades, especially in 
the last few years. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your input on that. I think it's always important to have historical context whenever we're talking about um, these really major current events. Um, I want to add personally, I think, um, you know, in my research, I found essentially U.S.-China relations are in the worst state that they've been since 1989, which is when um, a lot of civil unrest, especially the Tiananmen Square massacre, occurred in China, which um, essentially led to a lot of um, shifting in China's stance as a world nation or world leader. Um, additionally, I think something that I've noticed is that the relation between these two countries has taken on a very competing or almost like power grappling tone rather than cooperating as we have been in the past. Um, so do you want to attest to that maybe a little bit um, from your experience both as an educator and just as an informed citizen, um, how you've noticed the relations deteriorate in that specific way? So since 1945, when the United States won the Second World War, we have been really a global superpower. And during the Cold War, obviously, there was this grappling between the United States and the Soviet Union for influence and power throughout the world and their competing ideologies. The United States had the larger economy of the two countries and wound up coming up uh, on top at the end of the Cold War. And so going into the 1990s at the end of the Cold War, we were the preeminent power in the world. And any competition we had from the Russians was no longer there with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I think in, in the 21st century, one of the things that has been taking place is the fact that we have this resurgent China. And I like to use the word resurgent because I don't think it's necessarily China emerging as a world power. I think it's China resurging as a world power. China has been a world power for a long time. In recent uh, centuries, China's power had tailed off, especially in the 1800s during the era of imperialism, when Western powers had made a series of trade agreements with China that they viewed as being unequal. They call them the unequal treaties. And they looked at West as encroaching on their power. China had fallen behind the West technologically and industrially. So it allowed the Western powers to really impose their will on China and Japan as well, as they started to industrialize in the latter part of the 1800s. And so China started to fall behind those powers and started to really tail off in many ways as a world power. Their empire collapses in the early 1900s with the Chinese Revolution. Uh, led by Sun Yat-sen in 1911. And so the, you know, China is not looking at this as them emerging on the world scene for the first time. They're looking at this themselves as this is their time to reclaim the power and influence that China once had on the world. I mean, throughout history, China has always been one of the most powerful nations, both economically, militarily, in many ways. And so now this, they look at this as them taking back, you know, a large percentage of the world's influence. And so, of course, it's going to lead to some inevitability that it's going to brush up against the United States because as the you know, world's only remaining superpower at the end of the Cold War and the war largest economy in the world, you know, it's it's going to create this natural that there's going to be some rivalry and competition between the two countries. And so there's there's definitely some different conflicting viewpoints. Yeah, that's a really great point that you brought up. And I think 
um, you know, as I was saying before, it's always really important to consider how the past influence both current um, international relations, which is something obviously through Model Yin we have to do a lot of research with and, you know, we have to do um, a lot of digging to really understand how um, past relations and the history of these nations influences their current stance and current viewpoint. Um, I also want to bring up, just to add on to what you were saying before, um, I think that in addition to the way that these, you know, our two, the two nations, the U.S. and China, approach each other, whereas, you know, in the past we used to depend less on China for industrial power, for processed goods, for uh, maybe um, political gain or any sort of other um, alliance that may we may necessarily not need at this time. I think that's something that has also greatly influenced how the two countries um, up really approach each other when it comes to foreign relations. I also want to add um, something that I feel like the coronavirus has added into the mix when you're regarding um, the um, the relations between these two nations is the fact that I feel like the virus poses a threat to the not only national security, but also to the individual leadership or the individual power of the leaders of each government. And I think that, you know, as, as was stated by um, a Yumesh professor of political science, Yuan Yuan Ang, um, she stated that the virus has caused deep political insecurity for both, you know, the American and the Chinese leaders. So do you maybe want to touch on how the coronavirus specifically has impacted um, both the leadership styles and just the relationships between the U.S. and China? So, so how do you think the coronavirus specifically has impacted the relationship between the two countries? Yes, I, I think you provided excellent background knowledge, and maybe um, we could take that into a more modern light. I would say that probably the biggest you know, impact as far as the coronavirus is brought on is that I, I think, you know, the fact that the, the virus has, you know, we can trace it back to this city in China, Wuhan, the fact that as of now, we look at the virus as having spread from there to other parts of China and the world, you know, has certainly probably led to, I think, a lot of American citizens as having a, maybe a more negative view, because obviously the virus is bad. It, it's led to a lot of people getting sick and, and hundreds of thousands of people not only getting infected but dying from this virus. And so I th- think it's inevitable that it, it's you know going to create a negative or more of a negative viewpoint, you know, whether or not China could have done anything more to stop the spread of the virus. You know, that's certainly a conversation that people could discuss, but I think it's, you know, certainly created probably in, in, in many Americans' minds, a more negative viewpoint on the Chinese government. That's a really great point. And I agree with you. I think that um, although a lot of the negative response to the coronavirus is actually because of our own country's leadership, I think the way that China China handled it has definitely also contributed a lot to this um, both domestic and international tension, as you were saying before. Um, I think also... Um, something that's contributed to tension specifically between the two leaders, and I just want to point out, I think it's very important that when um, people refer to a specific nation, they should state whether they're referring to the government itself, the country, the citizens. It's actually something I read um, on a political blog, and I, I think it's important to make that distinction. But anyway, um, 
between the two leaders, I think there has been new tension because it's almost become a, a political game to see who can um, use the virus to boost bolster their own, you know, their political image or or I guess reclaim their spot as the number one world power. And I think um, definitely in former times, um, both the U.S. and China, I really didn't have equal levels of political power. Um, but I think that nowadays with the rise of the technological advances and manufacturing advances from China and with the militaristic and economic um, advances that our own country has made, I think really the atmosphere between the two nations has really become a lot more um, competitive rather than collaborative because both of our leaders are really um, grappling and fighting for that title of the number one world power. Um, so I, I think it's important to state also that this conflict is really between the, the two leaders or the leadership styles rather than the countries themselves. So a lot of um, people I know have faced um, you know, personal backlash, possibly racism, or they've just um, been treated poorly because of their association to a specific country as a response of the virus. But really, um, I, I do think that's quite unfair because when you look at it both from a political and a, a nonpartisan analyst standpoint, really the tension is not between citizens, it's not between um, societies, it's more these leaders and the decades of foreign relations and international relations that are really competing with each other, not individual citizens. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, definitely something uh, you have to you have to consider, and especially, like you said, the, you know, to, to not paint a country as being all the same thing. Obviously, there are people with different viewpoints in, in both countries. Yeah. Um, so I'll bring up one more thing about um, this topic of U.S.-China relations before moving on to the Hong Kong-China situation, which I know we've also been um, very interested in looking at. So um, something I want to bring up is the fact that trade deals and current um, trade agreements between the two countries may be jeopardized because of COVID, which I think, aside from political, um, you know, political quarries or political um, feuds, I think trade is another really important aspect of international relations that people often overlook. Um, so do you mind attesting a little bit to our research on how um, COVID has impacted U.S.-China trade deals? So how COVID specifically has impacted them? Yeah. Um, I think if if you want to take it more into a general standpoint, possibly how um, this new tone that we've been discussing that has emerged between the U.S. and China has impacted um, not only the political ties between the two countries, but also economic and social. I mean, so I think it's just been a big thing the last couple of years where there's been some tension over trade. Like I said earlier, the fact that China has become an increasingly large part of the United States trade, especially when it comes to purchasing manufactured goods and the fact that it's more affordable for companies, including American companies, to manufacture goods overseas and then them import them into the United States has certainly created uh, some tension. Politicians in the United States have suggested putting tariffs in place to protect American goods and make imported goods more expensive. And that's certainly created a, 
you know, I think a degree of, of tension between the two countries. China looks at it as something that will hurt their economy and is designed to benefit the U.S. economy. And of course, the objective of any country is they want to make sure that trade is benefiting them. Uh, you know, that's natural. Countries always want to feel that the trade is going to be beneficial to them. And so I think that that's been an aspect of trade between the two countries in, in the last few years, even before coronavirus, is this idea of who's getting the better end of it. And that I think there's a perception amongst some people that China has you know, been benefiting a lot from from trading. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if, if you had to take a bit of a general view on it, I think, you know, from a statistical standpoint, COVID has placed a lot of pressures both on um, the U.S. and on China to shut down interlinked supply chains, um, not only, you know, for self, um, safety or health risks, but also I think, as you said before, because of this new tension that um, the coronavirus pandemic has really added. Um, so I, I think that's really important to consider. Um, so next, we're going to move on to um, the long-awaited and long-overdue discussion on Hong Kong and China relations, which, as I was stating before, is something I feel like um, definitely hasn't gotten as much media coverage as it really should have. But um, this was actually a topic that you, Mr. Sumedi, brought up for discussion, and I'm quite glad you did, because actually, um, while doing my research, I learned a lot about the current um, situation that I really hadn't known before. Um, do you maybe want to start us off with some historical context? Sure. So China is a, I mean, I'm sorry, Hong Kong is a coastal city in China. And it was into the 1800s still a relatively small uh, trading center. And then there was two conflicts known as the Opium Wars between largely the British and China over trade. Britain was trading opium, a drug with China. This drug was getting a lot of people uh, addicted in China and was seen as being a negative influence. These trade tensions led to wars with Great Britain. And the first opium war ended in the 1840s with the Treaty of Nanjing. And this treaty gave Great Britain the control over Hong Kong. In 1860, with the end of the Second Opium War and the Treaty of Tianjin, this now gave Great Britain even more control over the areas around Hong Kong known as Kowloon. And so Great Britain started to consolidate more and more power around the city, and it became a British colony. And it was a British colony for many years until 1997, when in the summer of that year, control of the city reverted back to China. Part of the agreement between China and Britain was that with the return of control of Hong Kong back to China, that they would allow a certain degree of autonomy to the people of Hong Kong. So that Hong Kong would not just be any other Chinese city, but Hong Kong would still be allowed to keep their more open economy, their more open system of government that was more democratic, more open like Great Britain's. And so there was essentially this concept of 
one China, but two policies that, you know, Hong Kong would still be allowed to to have their degree of influence that they have had in the past. They would not just be absorbed into China like any other city. And with that agreement, uh, things, you know, that's largely been how it's been in the past few years. It's now been over 20 years since the return of Hong Kong back to China. Thank you for that much needed historical context. And I think you you said that one China, two policy, um, which is a historical phrase that's come up a lot when you mention, um, you know, current Hong Kong-China relations. Um, So specifically, we're going to be talking today about the new um, security law that was passed, um, which really poses a, a major threat to um, not only the sovereignty of Hong Kong, but also just really has um, led people to reevaluate China's role as in an international superpower. So um, if you don't mind one more um, bit of historical context, do you mind uh, describing a little bit why the Hong Kong protests erupted? I know they started around last June, June of last year, and they're still continuing over a year later. So... Last year, there was a law that was passed that had created some degree of controversy between the two countries. Uh, It was an extradition bill that would, I believe, allow China to... um, Any person that was accused of a certain crime would be be tried in uh, China and the people of Hong Kong felt like this was taking uh, away part of their power, part of their sovereignty, part of the system of government they had. And so it it led to a lot of protesting in Hong Kong. Thank you. You know, that started to tail off later in the year. After the coronavirus situation had really dominated the news in China and Hong Kong, you know, for the past couple of months heading into the summer, uh, you didn't hear as much about the protesting until China in June passed another law that the people of Hong Kong felt like was taking away their, you know, kind of overturning the agreement that uh, China had made with the British as far as leaving in place Hong Kong's sovereignty and the fact that it would have a different system of government. Thank you. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that law or do you? Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to discuss just briefly sure. the, the new national security law. So this law was passed on June 30th, 2020, and it's been politically in the works since 1992 and has been proposed numerous times in the 90s, the early 2000s, most notably in 2003, with varying degrees of success and failure. Ultimately, it was never um, officially politically adopted until this past June. And essentially, this new security law, which was passed in Hong Kong, um, it threatens the freedom of speech and freedom of expression that Hong Kong, um, Hong Kongers or the people of Hong Kong have been protesting out, essentially, against. Um, And this new proposed law makes speaking out against the Chinese government a jailable offense, not only by people in Hong Kong, but it's proposed that it actually could potentially... um, oversee um, or provide, I guess, government oversight onto people 
outside of Hong Kong and outside of China. So even people all across the world who maybe have ties to those two countries. Um, so essentially, people are fearing that China is using this new security bill to exert foreign influence all over the world and really just crack down on dissent and um, people speaking out against the Chinese government. Um, Mr. Samedi, so um, this is a topic that you brought up, and I know that through um, our Model UN Club, we actually held a simulation, I believe it was the beginning of last school year, sometime last school year, um, on the Hong Kong crisis. So, so maybe you want to talk a little bit about what your experience with that was? Yeah, that was one of the simulations we did in the fall of last year, and we had students represent different people within both the Hong Kong administration and also those within the Chinese uh, Communist Party and, and China's leadership. And we had that simulation. I don't remember. Did we have anybody from the United States represented in that simulation? I don't we did. We did. Yeah. And, and international community as well. Um, a couple members, although it was primarily um, Hong Kong activists and Chinese politicians, as well as a couple of our um, foreign leaders. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, th- I think that was certainly one of the big, you know, international topics at that point, And it still remained to be seen. I mean, we don't know exactly how this whole thing is going to play out, but I think it's it's certainly something that's important for people, I think, in the United States to have an awareness of what's going on between the United States and Hong Kong. And I mean, I think that's part of the reason why we did that simulation. It certainly seems like it is not a relationship that's going to um, improve anytime soon. It seems like things in Hong Kong and their relationship to the Chinese government has only gotten more hostile in the last few months, not better. So I think it's something we'll, we'll kind of have to see where, where it leads going forward. But I, I think it's certain that's something that's important, I think, for Americans and especially young people in America to, to really look at and, uh, you know, kind of see what the debate is about and to, to really, you know, I think be cognizant of it. I think it's something that maybe there's a lot of people in the United States because there is so much going on in this country. We have our own election that people are focused on. We have obviously the continuing pandemic that is affecting everybody's life in the United States of America right now. I think it's important to also realize there are other things going on in the world. That's a really wonderful point. And thank you so much for really expressing that critical um, virtue, I feel like, of American society, which is that we have a lot of privilege and a lot of power, and I think it's really the responsible thing to educate ourselves, not only about local issues or domestic issues, but international issues, as you'd said. So I'm really just so glad that I got to discuss these um, really interesting and really relevant topics with you today. So thank you so much for your time and your um, insight onto these topics. No problem. It has been a pleasure talking with you, Caroline, about these topics and you know, it's, it's always, I think, important when you see that there are young people out there who are interested in these things. I, I think it's it's to the benefit of, of everyone that, you know, the next generation of people, you know, in the United States has an interest in global affairs. I think it's incredibly important. 
Thank you. Um, with that, I, I think those are some great words to end on on that note. So as always, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at Global Perspective Podcast and my personal account at Caroline underscore OWXN. And of course, be sure to tune in next Friday for an episode on the Democratic National Convention of 2020. Um, and then, of course, in good tidings, the week after I'll be reporting on the Republican National Convention. If you like this episode, please consider to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Thank you so much, Mr. Samedi. It was a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So thank you, everyone, for listening and signing off. I'm Caroline Owen with The Global Perspective.